long podcast where we'll talk about the Will Payton Starman comic and the Mark Shaw Manhunter comic from the late 80s, early 90s. We'll talk about every appearance of these two great characters. If you've never read them or haven't read them in a while, this may be a good time to explore these issues. Now, let's get started with our first comic. And welcome to our first episode of the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. As I talked about in the Zero episode, I'm going to chronicle the books of Will Payton's Starman and the Mark Shaw Manhunter comic from the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I don't think these books get enough respect, enough love, so I'm going to see what I can do to make up for that here on this show. Uh, Again, I want to have this be an hour-long episode, but it may not be quite that long. Uh, one way you guys can help make this an hour-long episode is to write in. You can send emails to starmanmanhunter at headspeaks.com. That's starmanmanhunter at head, that's H-E-A-D, speaks, that's S-P-E-A-K-S, dot com. And I can read your letters on the air. Uh, but let's go and take a look at our first issue, and uh, we'll go from there, all right? So our first issue we're going to look at is Starman number one. The title was Grassroots Hero. The cover date was October 1988, but to buy this on sale, you'd have to be around in June the 28th of 1988. And yes, friends, I was there June the 28th of 1988, or around that time. And I was at my local comic shop, and I had a dollar on me. Well, okay, at the time, I was buying a bunch of comics, so I had a lot of dollars on me. But for this issue here, I paid a dollar for it. Uh, This was edited by Robert Greenberger. Writer is Roger Stern. Penciler, Tom Lyle. Inker, Robert Smith. Letterer, Robert Pignat. And colorist is Juliana Fritar. The cover artist is Tom Lyle. And here's the synopsis that's mostly taken from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which I'll have links to on my uh, blog page. A scientist named Dr. Melrose is trying to create a group of super beings using radiation from deep space directed to Earth with a satellite. During the experiment, the satellite is struck by space debris and knocked out of alignment, causing the radiation beam to be redirected into the mountains of Colorado. Sometime later, a young man is found by two hikers. The ground around him is charred, his skin appears burned, and he's believed dead. When the local coroner 
examines him, though, the man arises from the table. Startled by experience, he flees and discovers he now possesses super strength, invulnerability, and the power to fly. Using these new powers, which also includes the ability to radiate heat and light, he stops a bank robbery. During this time, we find out that this mystery man is named Will Payton, who then tracks down his sister, Jane. She was worried because he was missing for more than a month. Meanwhile, Will has no memory of the previous 34 days. Jane convinces Will to become a superhero and creates a costume for him. Reluctantly, Will accepts the costume and rescues a trapped construction worker. He is then dubbed Starman by the press. When word of this mysterious hero, Starman, reaches Dr. Melrose, he realizes that the satellite power was redirected and created this new hero. In typical comic book villain response, he vows to get the power back by any means necessary. The end. And now let's go to my thoughts on this issue. We start with the cover. It says Starman. Amazing debut issue. By Roger Stern, Tom Lyle, and Bob Smith. And the cover, in case you haven't seen it, shows Starman uh, flying up from a... He's in the middle of the mountains, it looks like. And it shows his flight where he comes flying up off the ground. Back behind him, there's a star twinkling in the distance. And we've got Starman front and center, dead on the cover. Uh, or dead front and center on the cover. He's not dead. <laughs> well, anyways. So he's got his purple and yellow costume, a big white star on the chest. I've heard a lot of people complain about this costume. Uh, me, I don't know. It's something about it. I really like this costume. I think it's a very dynamic cover. All it does is show Starman flying, but the way it's done, it's it's very dynamic. He's in your standard flying, fighting superhero pose. Uh, like I say, he's got uh, the costume. Like I say, he's got a big white star, a little off on the chest. The lower legs and the shoulders and upper arms are yellow. The gloves and the torso and the uh, upper legs are purple. Uh, he's got no no pupils in his eyes. His eyes are just pure white. Brown hair. Kind of an 80s style hair if you think. I, I think so. And then we move on to the inside first page. And again, very nice artwork. Uh, it's very standard at this point. We see a, a scientist scene. We've got several people strapped to tables. There's what, six that we can see. Strapped to tables at an angle. Well, we got our, our main scientist, who we find out later is named Dr. Melrose, watching. Other scientists are running around the foreground, uh, background, whatever it is, running tests and monitoring their vitals. Uh, again, the first couple pages shows the scientist stuff, which is very, very basic, very, it's very good. The bottom of the second page, we see Dr. Melrose. And we can tell, if you haven't read this issue yet, I think looking at this, you can tell that he's a bad guy. And maybe it's just me, but he's got, I don't know, he's just got an evil look about his face. So whatever you have to say, I think, uh, was this Tom Lyle? He did a magnificent job drawing Melrose, because again, he draws him looking very sinister. I mean, he's holding his lab coat. He's got that look on his face and he's, as he's talking about, you know, how he's trying to create human, uh, American superheroes, not alien Superman masquerading as heroes. 
or costume weirdos like the new Justice League, referring to the new Justice League that just premiered not too long before this. A quick little plug for a friend of mine, uh, the Irredeemable Shag from the Who's Who podcast and Fire and Water has, is starting a new Justice League International Bohahaha podcast, and that's the Justice League this is referring to. Uh, he continues on, but real, real red-blooded American heroes with the power to set things right. Just League International, ha! Huh. They even show their true colors when they let that rush into their group. And they're referring to Rocket Red. Again, the Just League International. Uh, it started out as Just League, and within like six or seven issues, it became Just League International. Uh, but again, that's not this podcast. So again, he's very much a patriotic guy, if you will. I'm doing air quotes. Uh, very. Uh, it depends how you look at it. If you side with him, you think he's patriotic. If you're a realist like myself, you think he's kind of a racist and uh, a speciesist and all the other kind of badists. So, not a nice guy. And then at the bottom of the second page... We see the satellite exploding, something hitting it, and we see beams just striking the Earth. And then we cut to the third page where we have the title, Grassroots Hero. And we see, we don't know who he is yet, but we find out later he's our star of our show, Will Payton, laying on the ground. The ground around him is burned. And we got these two hikers, the guy and this girl. They can't find a pulse. Uh, again, very nice artwork. Uh, I think the dialogue is very realistic. And the guy's like, Mister, can you hear me? Oh, I can't find a pulse. And his girlfriend or whoever's like, Should we try CPR, Dan? And her boyfriend or whoever he is, Dan, he's like, I oh, think it's too late for that, Sandy. He's gone. Because, again, they can't find a pulse or a heartbeat or anything on this guy. Uh, so as far as I can tell, he's dead. And then they can mention that there's a charger around the body, but he's not even singed. Like, he's like, what do you do? Lie down an old campfire? There's something very weird about this, Dan. And then we cut out all the extraneous BS that you don't need to see, and we're at the county morgue. And again, we're in the mountains somewhere still, because, again, the morgue's right on the cliff of a mountain. We see a road leading up to it. And we find a little bit more about Starman at this point. Uh, the coroner saying he doesn't look very heavy, but the cops like they must be made of lead. And he's also got a real odd color for a Caucasian. Again, to me, this comes across as very, and maybe it's just the age we're living in now. But this, guy, this cop comes across as very racist. Uh, he's like, you know, he's God. Very odd color for a Caucasian. To me, that comes across as, you know, he may not be, you know, a KKK member, but he, he, I don't know, it just comes across as very racist to me. Maybe just me. What do you guys think? Have you read this? Do you, what do you guys think about that? And they go on to say that he didn't have any ID, no wallets, and he has a watch that's been stopped for over a month. Uh, so I'm assuming the watch has is one of those kind of has a date and time on it. I mean, of course it's got the time. It's got like the date, a date feature on it apparently because they tell us it's not for a month. And the coroner's like, well, it could be dead for that long. Rigor mortis hasn't been set in. Heck, the body's still warm. 
So as a cop, please get some coffee. <laughs> like this next page, he's like, okay, buddy, let's get you prepped. See what we can, what did you end? And all of a sudden, Will sits up. Hey, what do you think you're doing? And almost gives the coroner a heart attack. Again, the artwork on this page, as I said, it's, it's, it's not fantastic, but it's standard. Again, there's no, it's ordinary people. It's a cop, a coroner, a dead guy in quotes. I think Tom Lyle's doing a good job with the artwork on this. Nothing super exceptional. Your standard, what I'd call standard superhero fare. Uh, better than a lot. Not as good as some others, but again, very serviceable for the story. And again, we get where Will Payton is sitting up and you know, he rips off the pipe off of the bed like it's tissue almost and then the coroner passes out. And again, again go back to uh, Stern's dialogue. The cop comes in, dropping the coffee. He's like, here you go, Duncan. I couldn't find any creamer, so you have to make it, take it. Holy, you're, you're dead. And Will thinks that when he says you're dead, he's talking about the coroner because the coroner's on the floor. So Will's like, no, I think you just passed out. The cop's like, not him, you. And so he pulls his gun on Will Payton, who leaps out the window. And again, due to the writer's uh, thought bubbles, whatever, uh, third narrator dialogue, whatever you want to call it, it tells that, you know, he leaps across the room faster than he expected, out the window. And he realizes he can fly. So again, uh, dialogue's pretty good on these pages here. I mean, it's uh, again, I, I like that last page where he's talking about, you know, you're dead. No, you just passed out. No, not him, you. It's like, oh my God, what have I woken up to? Again, I think Roger Stern makes good use of the inner monologue of Will Payton, his thought balloons. I mean, in the last decade or so, more than that now, last decade and a half, two decades, writers have seen go away from thought balloons. It's, it's thought as a bad thing. Done right, I think thought balloons are very useful and helps convey things that you can't quite get across otherwise. Otherwise, you'd be talking this out loud, which it's kind of odd. So, again, I, I've said it before, I like the thought balloons, and as long as they're done right. And Roger Stern, he, he's off of Superman. He's, he's a great writer in his own right. So I think he's doing a very good job with the, the dialogue in this issue. And the Tom Lyle's artwork. Like I say, here we're getting a little more than just standard fare. We got a guy uh, falling. And I like this where he suddenly realizes he can slow down and fly. We see his hair flopping in the wind. and Again, this is page six I'm looking at right now where he... One panel shows him falling, and then he's stopping in the air, and then he starts flying. Uh, again, very good artwork. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying the storyline. And again, as we continue through the story, again, he lands on top of a truck, and we see him digging his fingers into the truck so he doesn't fall off. Not that I don't think it would hurt him, but he holds on. And again, just, it's... I keep going about the artwork. It's it's very good artwork. It's better, I think, as we see more things. Again, Roger Stern. Again, this is the late '80s. As they wanted, as they want to back then, 
Sometimes it can be quite heavy with thought balloons, which again I'm okay with, as I stated before. Done right. Uh, the thought balloons kind of backs up the story. You can get by, because again, the artwork's good enough that you can tell what's going on that you don't need the thought balloons. And you also have the thought balloons to kind of give you a little more detail about what's going on with the story. Again, so you know, we see a truck pulling from a truck stop, and Will's thinking that, hey, we're slowing down. We're coming to a stop. I hope that means the nightmare is winding down. So, not only giving you a narrative of what's going on around him that the pictures are backing up, but it's also giving you his thoughts and uh, his opinion on the matter, if you will. So again, here's where Will's finding out that it's actually uh, June, the 22nd. And he realizes that the last time when he fell asleep under the stars, it was May 19th. So he lost just over a month of his life, as we find out on this page here. And also on this page, we find out why the coroner couldn't find his ID or wallet, because he keeps it in his boot. And again, the dialogue, the thought balloons, which again, are I keep saying this, they're kind of heavy, but... I, I think they warrant it. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's overused. Again, because it's it's letting you know stuff that you may not realize otherwise, and it's giving you his thoughts. Because there's one thought here on uh, page eight where he's like, "Is it lighter? Is my hands a funny color?" Which kind of backs up what the sheriff was saying without the racist overtones. And also, it's not a normal tan because there's the woman here, the waitress, she's like, been out in the sun a lot? Never seen a tan like that. And she's telling that, you know, too much sun can age your body. But again, casual dialogue you'd probably hear at any truck stop under these circumstances. So again, between him talking to her and his own thought balloons, we find out, as I said, he's lost a month of his life. He talks about amnesia being he thought of something on TV. And so they use the, the month of the life, him losing that, and him thinking about amnesia to give us a little bit of background on who he is. At this point, we find out we're on page nine. We find out that his name is William Payton. He's 25 years old. So again, it's a way to tell us who he is and a little bit about him without doing it overly so. It's, you know, he thinks he may have amnesia, so he's trying to remember his past. And then we get a guy running out of a bank. And, <laughs> and the bank robber shoots at Will and hits him in the shoulder, and it's, we see the bullet bouncing off. And while he is apparently impervious to bullets, he does feel the pain because, you know, he's like, ouch, why you miss well, that hurt. And I like the top of this page, I think it's page 10, where Will's powering up and it's just a black, he's all in black with white surrounding him, blinding the driver. And when he's powered up, he's all in black with the, the white light surrounding him. Again, guys try to pull the guns out again, he grabs the gun. And from the picture here, it looks like he's, he's bending one of them. Another one almost looks like he's melting it almost. Again, great dialogue. Uh, I'm enjoying the artwork here. Uh, we get the cop cars pulling up. We see the lights blaring. 
And here on this next page, page 11, it does confirm what I thought I saw on the previous page where he was melting the guns as the cops are arresting him. And the cops are talking about how the guy that just stopped these criminals matches the morgue that's missing from the, uh, the, the sorry, the body that's missing from the county morgue. And Will at this point flies off. And I guess one of the, as Will's flying off, this kid's like, look at mom, is that a Green Lantern? And the cop's like, Ralph, I think I talked to an angel and I never even got his name. So again, it's very, a lot of dialogue here, getting us caught up and letting us know what's going on. It's very believable dialogue. Again, Stern's doing a fantastic job. Uh, he's a magnificent writer, I think, in my opinion. And then on page 12, we meet Will's sister, Jane. Again, she's to me, she's very 80s. She's got a, a shorter haircut. Uh, kind of poofed up on the top a little bit. And Jane is basically our eyes and ears in the Will's world, if you will. He's able to explain to her what's going on, what he knows, that he can fly, he's got these powers... And, yeah, he's showing her he's super strong. He can let off uh, heat and lights. And, again, they've got a great brother-sister bond. Uh, as I've talked about in my Head Speaks podcast, I had a brother at one time that passed away. I'm not going into that story here, but I, I can feel the bond he has with his sister and she with him. Yeah, she's been, he's been missing for a month. And, you know, she gives a big hug and, you know, she tells him that she's thrilled that he's got these powers. And she's a lot more excited about him getting powers than he is. He, you know, he wants to have, have an ordinary life. And she's like, don't you see you've become a superhero? And so, you know, he also tells her he's bulletproof now. So as they go back into their home in Phoenix, uh, he shaves off his beard. Uh, they mentioned that I guess their, their mom lives with them or they live their mom or something. They talk about their, his mom not liking the beard. So he shaves it off and uh, she's like, you look, you're part Indian. You that shade all over? And then we find out more about his powers that he can generate heat. So he tries to, where his beard was at, it's lighter than the rest of them. So he uses his heat power, his sun power, if you will, or star power, to darken up his chin and he gets a little bit too dark and his sister kind of joking around says won't well, try thinking yourself back to normal and he does so we start to find a little more about his powers he can actually alter his shade and as he's feeling his face he face feels kind of like super putty if you will as he pushes on his face we see his finger indentations and about this time their mom comes home and again as standard troop, he has to keep the secret away from his mom, which I don't mind because I'm a big fan of the superhero identity. A lot of people nowadays think it's, I don't know, unneeded. But as I've said elsewhere, I'm a big fan of the secret identity. So I, I like the fact that, you know, and it's part of the story that they've got to keep the secret from mom. And we find out that he's unemployed. So again, through this here, we're getting some backstory on this. 
on Will's backstory about how he's unemployed right now. He's living with his mom because he doesn't have a job. In the next couple of pages, it's altering between Will trying to contact people he was in contact with a month ago to find a job, who, since he disappeared a month ago, he seems very flake and unreliable, and his sister showing him designs for costumes, like, well, with this one, he's like, you know, I don't want to be a hero. I want to get a job. I want to live a normal life. And again, we see, you know, much like a lot of people, when they lose their temper, they don't realize what they're doing, and he ends up breaking the mom's phone. And again, we find a little more about the backstory. Uh, apparently, he had a job with a place called Vision Associates. And she was saying that his boss there, Mr. March, wants him back. And he's like, well, I hate that place. They'd be writing ads to sell people things they didn't want or need. So again, we're finding a little more about Will. While he doesn't want to be a superhero, he does have scruples and morals. And, and selling, stuff to, selling stuff to people that don't need it really doesn't sit well with him. So again, we're, we're getting that he's a decent guy. I like that. Uh, maybe a little bit of an anger problem, but again, after having jobs lined up and then losing them, and you don't know why you lost that month, that can make anyone get a little cranky. So I, I don't blame him for being upset. Uh, and his mom is writing him to get the, you know, take the job that he doesn't like. Uh, she's calling him a bum, call him a dumb kid. Uh, again, you can tell she dots on the sister a little bit more, I think. We'll find more about that later on. And then here we are on page 18. We get the first look at his costume as he's coming out of the shower. His sister's hanging the costume instead of a towel. She said, try it on. Apparently for the last three days she's been sewing him the costume. So again, as I said earlier, his sister is very excited about him becoming a hero where he wants to be an ordinary person. So he's the reluctant hero and his sister's pushing him into it. And so as they're saying they're talking about this, they see on the news that they, a crane or something has fallen. This man's trapped under there. And there's no way they can get there, anyone can get there to actually help him in time. So, like this, on page 20, near the end of the story, we get our first look at the actual Starman. Uh, we see that he's actually changed the way his face looks, the color of his hair. He's got his costume on. We see Starman as we saw him on the cover. And I like this. As he comes flying in, he's got a thought balloon saying, They see me. I better say something to reassure him. So we see that he's, again, he's not quite sure what he's doing. Uh, he wants. He doesn't want to be a hero, but he's doing what needs to be done. But see how he's dressed as a hero? He wants to sound like one. So he's like, don't be afraid. I'm here to help. I'm like, who are you? And he's like, it doesn't matter who I am. I might be able to save that man. And so as he lifts the crane off, I, I like this. It shows that he's while well, he's strong, he does have his limitations. He's able to lift this crane, but you can see in this again the artwork on this is it's now that we're actually seeing stuff besides you know the place and all that from earlier. We see him straining; his feet's digging into the ground. You can see the look on his face where he's straining to lift this crane up. And again, all this artwork on page twenty-one, uh, between the look on his face, his hand digging into the truck, and his feet digging in the ground. You can really tell that he's he's trying his hardest, and that you know it's a bit of a strain. But he's going to he's going to do it to save this guy. And as he lifts it up, they pull him out, and the crane falls down on top of Will, crushing him, or so we think. 
as you were, you know, they're saying, oh my God, this guy, you know, lifted the crane and it crashed and destroyed him. Where <laughs> reporters like, uh, yeah, the cheers that might have shouted over a man's rescue have been silenced by the sorrow fell for his rescuer, a godly costumed stranger who made the ultimate sacrifice. Whoever he was, he died a hero. And we see that people are saddened by this this man they don't even know dying because he was trying to save another person. Well, he did save another person. And all of a sudden, the crane starts the ground starts melting under the crane, and we see Starman come flying out of the ground. And at this point, this really give him the name. Someone's like, "All right, way to go, Starman." And we're back at his house or his mom's house. And we get again a little more that we see a shape shifting ability. That he can change his voice. He can change the way his face looks. And again, she, he doesn't want to be the hero still. He's very the reluctant. His sister's like, "Well, great, you can be a fantastic hero like Geo Force and Booster Gold." And he's like, "Yeah, you're all jerks. Booster Gold, you know, wants to play a hero just to make commercial endorsements." And again, Booster Gold had his own series. Uh, it may have been wrapping up at this time. Speaking of Booster Gold, there is a the Blue and Gold podcast. Not Blue and Gold. Silver and Gold. Which talks about Booster Gold and Captain Adam. I haven't had time to listen to it yet, but it, both great series. I definitely recommend if you enjoy either of those books, uh, check that out. The, the Silver and Gold podcast. But... Again, so he's talking about uh, Booster Gold... And Booster Gold also is a member of the Justice League International, as I mentioned earlier. But again, not getting back into Shag's podcast. We're talking about Starman here. And again, you know, he's talking. Show he's got his sister's Time magazine saying, you know, there's a few heroes like Superman and Wonder Woman that are worth something, but the rest are, you know, he's like, wait a minute, we're doing my magazine, Mister. I don't want to be a superhero. So again, a very brother-sister relationship here, you know. She, she's urging him to do what she thinks is best for him. He wants to do his own thing. And he finally admits that, you know, he will maybe he will wear the costume. He's good on his terms. And he's asked his sister to help. And she's ecstatic about this. Again, she's got the very big hoop earrings and her very 80s punk rock haircut, if you will. And then we end with on the final page here with uh, the scientists and Melrose looking in the paper where Starman saves the man and talking with his assistant, they realize that the same powers that Starman's exhibiting is the powers that are supposed to be given their, their test subjects. So he figures that somehow the Starman guy got the powers that was intended for his, his test subjects. And again, in typical supervillain, if you will, uh, dialogue, he's like, find out all you can about the Starman. And it turns out that he did somehow receive the power meant for our people, then we're going to get it back from him, one way or the other. And he's got the mustache, you just need to twirl him a little bit. But <laughs> but anyways, and then we have the ending. It says, uh, next issue, Will searches for his origins, discovers some un- unnerving things about himself. Starman meets the Arizona Highway Patrol, and he killers on the loose. On Starman number two's action-packed thriller, Phil Testing. And then on the next page, we get a little bit about the previous Starman that I talked about in my Zero episode. 
Uh, so again, it talks about the birth of this Starman, how it came about. So again, if you have this first issue, definitely read this. This the or be the letters page. It talks about the previous Starman and how this Starman came out to be. So, anyways, that that's the first issue of Starman. Uh, my thoughts again. I really enjoyed the artwork. I enjoyed the dialogue. I enjoyed everything about it. This is why Star. I'm doing a podcast on Starman because I think it's Roger Stern did a great job writing it. Tom Lyle did a fantastic job with the artwork. It started off a little slow as far as the artwork, but I think by the end it picked up and it was it was very good artwork. Again, maybe it's not George Perez or. Uh, Dan Jurgens or the, the Masters, if you will, but I think Tom Lyle did a very good job uh, with what could be considered a C-list superhero. So, anyways, that's my thoughts on the first issue of Starman. Uh, give me just a minute. I'm gonna play some advertisements from some other podcasts, and we'll be back to talk about the first issue of Manhunter. We'll return after these messages. Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't, you'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! 
back to our show. Welcome back to the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. For the second part of our show, we're going to talk a little bit about Manhunter number one. The uh, issue is entitled Visible Objects. Cover date was July of 1988. But again, if you want to buy this off the newsstand, you have to go back to March the 15th of 1988. Again, this is a couple of months after Starman, who came out in June, like three months later. Uh, is when this issue came out. The cover price was $1. The editor of this book was Barbara Kessel. The writer was both the wonderful John Ostinger and Kim Yell, who is his wife. Penciler Doug Rice. Inker Sam Keith. Letterer John Costanza. Colorist Juliana Fertier. The cover credits, the penciler was Doug Rice and the, Sam, uh, the inker was Sam Keith. And just a little notes on this. Uh, following his capture in this book, Captain Cole joins the Suicide Squad in Suicide Squad number 16, which I'll be covering in about six months or so over on my Task Force X podcast, uh, which I heard a promo for just a few minutes ago. But that's a different podcast. Let's get back to this one. The synopsis for this story. And again, I pulled this from Mike's Amazing World of Comics because it's an amazing site. <laughs> Uh, Mark Shaw has resumed his mass identity as the Manhunter and is now working as a bounty hunter. He apprehends the Penguin and turns him over to the police for a reward. Mark then returns home to meet his family for a party to celebrate his half-sister's successful completion of the bar exam. Meanwhile, a killer named Dumas impersonates a Catholic bishop in order to assassinate Bishop Damien Mutbuta. Dumas was hired by a racist businessman who transfers payment when the job is done. Mark next goes after Captain Cold. He follows him home from a Mets game and then trails him to the site of a drug deal. Captain Cold plans to steal from the drug dealers, but Manhunter sees that the police and reporters already have the location staked out. Manhunter is then caught on camera as he apprehends Captain Cold. After seeing Manhunter on the news, Olivia Vancroft contacts her associate to acquire Manhunter's mask, which she intends to add to her collection. She demands that Dumas be hired should the mask prove difficult to get. And that is the first issue of Manhunter. Again, a little couple of notes here before you go into my thoughts on it. Uh, Captain Cold, if you watch the Flash TV show, we see he's showing up on there. He's also on the new uh, Legends Tomorrow. I think they're doing a pretty good job with Captain Cold on both of those shows. Uh, now that he's on a uh, more of a, a heroic role, if you will, in Legends Tomorrow, while well, he's not a hero, but he is more of the, the pro- uh, protagonist, or one of them, he's getting a little more uh, backstory and a little more uh, a little more filler on who he is. So I think they're doing a good job with him so far. But again, different podcast. We're here to talk about Manhunter. So let's go to my thoughts on the issue. So we start the cover. Uh, the cover, it's kind of a busy cover. Uh, we got Manhunter along the top. On the left-hand side, we got a little box with Dumas in it. And then on the main page of the cover, we've got Manhunter, uh, like he's leaping down from somewhere. Another small box on the side, we have a picture of Captain Cold. And down at the bottom, we have a uh, 
a scene of Manhunter snapping his baton open. Uh, like I say, it's a little busy. Uh, much more busy than the Starman cover, I think. Because it has all these extra scenes on here. But it's not a bad cover. Like I say, it shows his Manhunter, shows his baton. As far as Manhunter's costume, I like it. Um, his costume, he's got the... Uh, like a silver gray, I'm quite sure color that is, mask on. He's got a blue and red costume, mostly blue with red highlights, red uh, scarf or something around his neck. Uh, it's a very nice costume. This she starts out with a quote from uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And then we go into Mark Shaw's uh, voiceovers. I am Mark Shaw. I've been a hero, a villain. And again, a hero. I am now a manhunter. And again, as I said, this is written by John Ostender and his wife at the time, Camille. Uh, John Ostender, if you listen to my other podcasts, may be familiar with him from the Suicide Squad comic that I review over on Task Force X. And again, if you listen to that podcast, you may also be familiar with uh, Manhunter, who showed up over there as the privateer. <clears throat> so again we start with the splash page we show Mark Shaw watching a building with some binoculars his mask is on the ground next to him he's in full costume otherwise and we see he's watching the pink one and basically we've got his monologue here saying how he's, he's watching uh, there was this necklace called the rock's eggs was stolen and his information said it was stolen by the penguin. So he's watching the penguin. Uh, again, decent artwork at this point. Uh, we move on to page three. And the top of the page, we see him donning his mask. And then we see a full page of him just standing there before he pulls the baton out and gets to action. Uh, again, as he's going through this, for the since he's a brand new character... Well, for the most part. I mean, Mark Shaw's been around. He's had different identities. But this is the Manhunter's first book as far as his character. So he gives us his uh, inner monologue comes across as uh, caption boxes. And so he tells, talks about this hardware. He's got a power baton, which he tells was a relic of when he was part of the Manhunter cult which you may be familiar with if you read uh, Green Lantern at the time. So as he goes through the story, he basically gives us, fills in the reader about who he is as he goes along, about his weapons. I like this on page four, it looks like. Yeah, on page four, he's running along the rooftop and he jumps off and he uses his, his uh, power baton. And as he's doing it, he's, you know, he's giving us a, an inner monologue. He's you know, estimated distance, ledge to ledge, 30 yards. And so he's kind of, thinking to himself how far these jumps are and he he uses his baton it gives a uh, magnetic pulse which allows him to uh, not really fly but it just lifts him up off the ground and allows him to leap from roof to roof <laughs> like this, he busts in, he busts into the penguin as the penguin's in the bathtub. He's got his rubber ducky, soap suds all over. Kind of a comical scene, but again, it, it fits with Ostrander's writing here 
rosters and uh, Kim Yell's writing. And again, I, I like uh, his thought balloon here. It's like, I like pinches like this. Catching the prey if they're pants, pants down. It avoids scenes. So again, he's got the penguin, you know, penguin ain't got none of his tricks with him right now. He's in his bathtub. And again, this is the old school penguin. It's not the monstrous penguin you see a lot of times nowadays. It's the overweight, monocle, long pointy nose, wearing the uh, suit all the time. I love this version of the penguin. I'm not a big fan of the newer versions of him. When they try to make him more of a monstrous person instead of just a what he is, you know. And I like this. He, he's so, you know, the manhunter's telling him, you know, I'm taking you to jail, basically. I'm going to collect the bounty on you. And uh, Penguin's like, come on, you're, you're, you're in jail yourself. Have you no sympathy? And Mark's like, I stayed clean when I got out. So basically, it lets us know that Mark Shaw's had his past as a criminal. He's been in jail before. Uh, but he's learned his lesson, and now that he's out, he, he wants to stay clean and do right. And so the penguin's like, well, can I have some, can you give me something to wear at least? And so he gives the penguin his hat to wear as he takes him to jail, which is, I, I think, very funny. Again, good artwork. Uh, the dialogue on here is very good. And so, again, as we've talked about, Mark Shaw in this series, he's a bounty hunter. So he has a lot of interactions with the police in this book. And so he introduces to Lieutenant Best, who is a cop with whom he's got a uh, previous relationship with. And in the dialogue, or in the, uh, the voiceover stuff, he says, you know, he's a cop who he struck up with a warm personal relationship. Uh, I think that's kind of sarcasm or kind of uh, maybe not quite truthful because the dialogue in here... The cop's saying this three times, and he calls him a scumbag. And he asks him why doesn't he spread his bounty out elsewhere, and otherwise does he bother some other cops. And like Mark Shaw's like, it's convenient to my subway stop. And he's like, what's your beef? We both do the same job, more or less. And Lieutenant Bess is like, less, much less. I do a job for a paycheck. And I agree with what Mark says here next. He's like, we're both just making a living, Lieutenant's. Uh, again, Lieutenant Bess is a cop. He's you know, so he's fighting crime for a paycheck. And in the scheme of things, Mark Shaw as a bounty hunter is fighting crime as a you know for a paycheck. So they are very similar. The difference is, I think uh, Lieutenant Bess is hampered by more regulations and more laws than Mark Shaw is. As a bounty hunter, he's got a little more leeway than the cops do so and again like this last scene on this page he's like hey, it could be worse Chuck could have a sidekick which kind of I think is Ostinger's way of kind of poking fun at the whole sidekick routine but and then we cut over to Canterbury where we have a uh, what's his name Bishop Damien Mutuba and a couple of his guys is going to a confession He's going to see a Bishop Charles Sutton, who used to, uh, he taught Bishop Mutuba, 
probably mispronouncing his name, but uh, so basically he wants to go to this other priest for his confession. And when he goes in, he's you know says he's here for you know to repent and all that. And all of a sudden, the priest is there to see pulls a gun out and shoots him. And we found out that Matuba had been killed. And we find out that it looks like maybe this guy is a shapeshifter. Uh, we see him in the car. He's talking on the phone to his boss. His, his, I say his boss. Uh, he's talking to the person that hired him. Uh, this is the villain Dumas. And his face looks like it's probably shifting and it looks like it's melting here. It's kind of an interesting look. Uh, as he's driving along and he's talking to his employer and he's like, the assignment's complete, your mentally priest is dead. Are you certain this, Dumas? And Dumas is like, as certain as a bullet between the eyes can be. So at this point we can find out a little bit more about the villain of the piece. Uh, he's comes from a shapeshifter, you can change the way he looks. And we see Dumas's mask from the front cover on here. And again, I like this. So apparently it's some sort of racist guy that had Batuba killed. Because Batuba, the priest, is, or the bishop, is a uh, black guy. And uh, I like this. Again, we're seeing uh, the guy that hired Dumas talking. We see his big building, his voice coming out. He's like, now with Matuba dead, maybe the damn blacks will think twice before challenging it again. And Dumas is like, or maybe they'll hire me to hire me, and you will be my next target. And the guy's like, oh, come now. Would you sign against them with one of your own? And Dumas is like, I do a job, Air Van Damme, for whom I don't much care. So again, he's telling the guy that, you know, I, well, this uh, Air Van Damme guy is a bit of a racist. Dumas isn't. He does whatever he gets paid to do, so... Again, the art, the art on this page, well, it's not fantastic. I mean, it's it's a little hard to tell because we've got a lot of smaller panels. We've got Dumas shape-shifting, it looks like. In fact, I, I could be mistaken, but it looks like he's shape-shifting. So that makes the artwork kind of wonky. Not really wonky, but it's a little harder to, to really enjoy it because it's not a, a static shot. It's him changing his shape, so... Again, I'm going back and forth. I, I like it, but it's not super fantastic. But it is. Uh, there's a lot going on on this page. Uh, again, it's a, a change of pace from modern books, which, in my opinion, don't have as much going on usually. Uh, it's not bad. It's again, I waffle. One mega. I look, one minute I look at it. It's, it's not bad. Another minute I look at it, it's, it's actually a pretty good page. And I think it's just there's panel. Like, see, the first first panel is not a great shot because you get, get a little bit of the guy's head behind his car. The next couple panels, we actually see his face kind of melting and changing. Uh, then we get a close-up of uh, Air Van Damme, which is a, a decent picture. And then this fourth box... Uh, I like the scene that shows Dumas's mask, but Dumas in the background is kind of indescript at this point, and it, it's kind of hard to. Can't really make out a lot about him. 
But again, I, I like what this page is getting across, though. As far as story-wise, uh, Ostinger's telling it, and again, I keep saying Ostinger. It's Ostinger and Yell. Uh, I'm not sure how this broke down. If one of them did dialogue, one did the plotting, or if they worked together. Uh, maybe I can get a chance to talk to him at some point and find out, but... Uh, I, I like the story in this. Again, you know, so we got this racist, you know, and as I said earlier, Dumas doesn't care about race and skin color. All he cares about is the color green. And they're back with Mark Shaw. And he's saying that it's basically like me and his family. And so he disguised himself as a, a chauffeur as he drives up to his family's house. And since most of the world thinks he's a bad guy he goes he has to go to his family disguised and we cut to his family yeah the, another page it's the first part of the page is you know a house and it shows Mark Shaw draw, disguises a, a valet or a, a valet or whatever talking once other uh, drivers uh, that part's okay the bonus page it's not fantastic page 12 overall it's a decent page but uh, Again, yeah, this this bottom part, it's very... And it mentioned the style, but to me it looks very rough. Uh, not a huge fan of it. Again, it's hard... Again, it's Mark... Uh, Mark. It's John Ostinger, so it's hard for me to say anything bad about a John Ostinger comic. But, again, this the bottom of this page isn't exactly my most favorite piece of art, but it's not horrible. Anyways, move on. Again, the art in the rest of the book, the next couple of pages. Again, the next page is much like this one. It's not on page 13. It's it's decent, but it's nothing spectacular. Uh, I mean, there's some some people in the panels look really good. Others, especially uh, this James guy, uh, which looks like it's a... Mark's baby brother. I, I don't know. Maybe just the way he looks. He just looks very cartoony. And then the bottom of the panel on page... Or the bottom of page 13. Again, the, the, the mom and dad, they don't look that great. Again, James still looks kind of cartoony compared to everyone else. Uh, they are on this, these couple pages here. is kind of hit or miss with me. Then we move on, and we get the backstory about uh, how Mark Shaw became the manhunter, basically. How he became the new manhunter, if you will. He says he's like to serve just as a public defender. And uh, his client was murdered by a man that the law couldn't touch. His uncle, his natural father's brother, uh, introduced him to the manhunter cult. And again, it goes a little more backstory here. Uh, and then it's got a reference to the first issue, special number five, and Secret Origins 22. And as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, my buddy Ryan Daly, he's got a Secret Origins podcast, and he covered issue 22 oh, a month or two ago. Uh, if you want to hear more about Secret Origins 22 and the origins of the Manhunters, definitely go check out uh, Ryan's Secret Origins podcast. It's a great show. Uh, but anyway, so we continue on with his origin. It's pretty good. And again, it's a lot... These next couple of pages, a lot of face shots with uh, dialogue. 
I don't mind it so much. I know a lot of people prefer to see, if you're going to do the origin, expand it out a little bit more and actually show scenes instead of just these face shots. Uh, again, decent artwork. It talks about how he uh, infiltrated the Justice League. He adopted the identity of Zarzar and the Privateer. Uh, the Privateer you may be familiar with from, uh, if you listen to my Task Force X podcast, the last couple episodes, Mark Shaw showed up over there during the Millennium Saga as the Privateer. And apparently he was unmasked by the Red Tornado. And he was sent to jail. And in jail, he worked with the prison psychologist, a guy named Simon Legrieve, to help break free of the cult's influence. And participating in a Suicide Squad mission, he was able to get his sentence commuted. Uh, once again, to see more about... Uh, Mark's mission to get since commuted. See Task Force X uh, podcast. I believe it was episode 18, if I'm not mistaken, or 19. Uh, Mine's playing tricks on me. I think it was 18. I think it was 18. I talked about the Manhunter uh, and the Millennium issues and all that. So I definitely checked that out. And he decided after, you know, he got out of jail, he's turned his life around, he wants to become a bounty hunter. And I like this here on top of page 16. He's talking, and uh, he's like, Why, Manhunter? After all I've been through, to remind myself of the desire for justice that first led me to become a Manhunter. As a warning of what I was and could become again. So that's why after he fell for the Manhunter cult, he was a Manhunter for a long time, brainwashed. Now that he's free, he's turning his life around. Some people may wonder why why use the identity of uh, bad guys, if you will. And basically, it's a reminder to remind him of what he was and... If he's not careful, what he can come in once again. So it kind of helps keep him on the straight and narrow. Anyway, so he tells a story. He has a little argument with his brother here about bounty hunting being a lousy way of life. And he gives his sister keys to a new car. And again, the artwork here, the last couple pages was decent. Uh, this page here again starts out all right. And then on the middle of this page, it's, it's got his his sister's got the keys. She's kind of dancing away. And I don't know. She looks a lot bigger in this scene than she did previously. A lot heavier. Uh, everyone else in the background is kind of hard making one out. There's a big... looks like a moon almost behind her head. But since they're indoors, I don't... It's, I don't know. I think it's just a circle. But... Uh, Again, it's a decent enough page, I guess, but not fantastic. Uh, and then we move on to page 17, which is the uh, we show Captain Cold and Mark Shaw watching him. Again, we're back to th- this is pretty good artwork here. Uh, Captain Cold's at a baseball game, apparently, he bet on. And as he leaves, he changes to Captain Cold. And the next couple pages show Mark's following him. Again, we're back. I think a lot of it, when it's in the Manhunter pages, it's really good artwork. And when it's civilian stuff, it, it's not quite as good for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. But yeah, these Manhunter pages here where he's chasing after Captain Cold. Uh, I, I like the artwork on this page. It's really good. Captain Cold's jumping on the train. Mark Shaw jumps after him. 
I think there's one scene here where Mark Shaw jumps on the back of the, the train as it passes by. And uh, it's a thought balloon that says, Hey, hi, how about the Mets? Thinking as he looks at a passenger, the passenger looking back, he's like, That's it. I'm moving back to Chicago. So they're not really speaking to each other. Again, it's dialogue, uh, thought balloons. But again, I like the dialogue on here. I like the way that uh, John and Kim, again, I don't know which one was responsible for the, the actual dialogue. But the dialogue in this is really good. It more than makes up for any of the bad artwork in this. Uh, but as I mentioned in the uh, synopsis, as Captain Cold... comes down to where this drug deal is at to steal the money from these guys uh, we find that the media is there and this reporter Howard Baxter Foot you know it's, it's kind of funny if you look at it. he's up to this drug dealer going Howard Baxter Foot live from a drug deal in progress on New York's east side so it's kind of funny that there's the media trying to interview this drug dealer as they're and again they're, the cops are there the cops have their guns on them so the, the cops are trying to, or sorry, the reporters trying to interview these drug dealers. The cops are to arrest them. Captain Cold pops up to steal the money from the drug dealers, and in the middle of it all, Mark Shaw jumps in to capture Captain Cold. And again, the artwork. Again, like I said, I enjoy this artwork on these next couple pages here. Uh, on top of page 21, there's a scene where Captain Cold is blasting at the Manhunter, and Manhunter's using his baton to uh, stop the Cold Blast. And I like this. It's power baton versus free gun, freeze gun. Dueling technologies. Mine one. As it knocks Captain Cold out. And the, the reporter, the honus on this guy comes up, he's like, Manhunter, Howard Baxter Foot, are you Paul Kirk? He's like, no, I'm... Are you Paul Kirk's son? No, I'm... Just what is your relationship to Paul Kirk? Paul Kirk, if you haven't listened to the Secret Origins podcast I mentioned earlier, uh, we wait for Pause. Let's go listen real quick, then come back. I'll give you a minute. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, long enough. Uh, Paul Kirk was one of the previous Manhunters. Everyone knows. So that, that's why this reporter keeps mentioning about Paul Kirk. I, I like that throwback to the previous Manhunter... And again, the last panel of this page, after Mark leaves, he, he, the cops take him in without Mark Shaw getting the bounty for him, since the cops were arresting him anyways. Uh, so as he leaves, the reporter's like, you've seen live the much-talked-about new Manhunter in action tonight. What connection this Manhunter is with the great, late, great Paul Kirk is yet to be determined. So again, it's very much Paul Kirk was the previous Manhunter. Everyone in the DC universe apparently knows this. And again, I, I forget offhand, I, I listen to that podcast, but I don't remember what happened with Paul Kirk, but uh, apparently he, no one quite knows where he's at or what's happened with his legacy. So, And then we finish this last page. Uh, again, decent artwork. Uh, we have Dumas talking to some gal named uh, Olivia Vancroft. And she basically wants to hire Dumas to go after Manhunter and get his mask. 
And again, at the very least, again, as my buddy Shag Matthew would say, uh, she looks kind of hot in this panel. Uh, but that's not necessarily entirely. At the bottom, like I say, she hires Dumas to go after Manhunter for his mask. And at the bottom of this page, we see that she's a collector of masks. And on one side, we see a bunch of men. We see Batman, uh, Midnight, Mr. Miracle, Vigilante, uh, the Adrian Chase Vigilante, which I loved. I've talked about that elsewhere. Uh, and a bunch of other masks I don't recognize offhand. Maybe Sandman. And then on the other side of this screen, she has one labeled Manhunters. And she's got three masks, plus one that says On Order. Waiting for Paul for uh, Mark Shaw. Paul, how do I call him Paul Kirk? For Mark Shaw's Manhunter mask. And it says next, Dumas versus Manhunter. And again, the artwork on this last page is pretty, it's pretty good. Uh, I enjoyed it. So, and then uh, that's the end of the story. We have the you know, those gals like, thank you, Mister DeVry. You see, I want to be sure. I want to make complete my collection. And that's where we see the the Manhunter masks. So, again, I don't know how she got Batman mask. There's Steel's mask on the wall. Uh, they're all close together, so it's kind of hard to make out some of these. Uh, if anyone has a list, they may show up another issue, actually. In a couple issues, they may mention it. But if anyone has a list or knows offhand who all these masks are, feel free to write in. Nice. I recognize a handful of them. A few I'm not quite sure. A few I may be. But, again, the artwork on this is pretty good because you got a page or you know, half page of different masks. In fact, that one there looks like uh, Plastic Man goggles. But I doubt if it's that because I think his goggles are part of them now. Huh. I'm going to look at a couple issues and see. But anyways, I, like I said, you got a bunch of masks, so it's... And the masks on here are drawn very good. Mr. Miracles, it's kind of slouching because it's just a mask on a... Uh, a looks like almost like an egg. It's like a huge white uh, oval. But that's the end of this issue. Again, the artwork on this series was, or on this issue at least, was hit or miss. Some was better than others, some pages. Uh, the dialogue, the writing, John Ostender and Kim Yell, as usual, hits it out of the park. I can't go on enough about how much I enjoy their writing. Uh, but that's it for this issue of uh, Manhunter. Let's go ahead and go quickly, and without further delay into our mailbag section which I haven't quite decided on a name yet uh, but if you listen to what I'm going to say next or one of the letters we have actually uh, we may have a name in that and first before we get to the mailbag I'm going to read off the Facebook likes I'm reading directly from the Facebook page right now uh, so for Facebook likes and comments and what have you we have Ryan Wing and actually, Ryan commented on our page. He said, I'm so excited for this podcast. These two runs are a blast, and I even have my own library-bound editions made of them. Uh, thanks for writing in, Ryan. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And as we move on, uh, we also further likes and comments we have. From Sunny Morrison. DC in the 80s. Legacy Brand Comics, Eric Wilkerson Guillard, Bradley Smalley, Brian Yardley, Micah Sigmund, 
And I'm going to mess this name up. We just talked about it over on the G.I. Joe podcast the other day. Uh, Kimati Gillespie Fergano. I'm sorry, but if I mentioned, messed your name up. And as far as some other comments on the page, uh, again, I, com- I was delayed a little bit last episode. I'm delayed a little bit this episode. It seems to be a common concurrence with me. Uh, boy, I apologize on my Facebook page for it. Michael Wagner's like, just means less weight. Sadly, it's going to be about the same amount of weight. Sorry, Mike. And Brian Lardley also said he discovered this podcast last night. Uh, this was February the 18th. He said he's excited to listen, and he needs to go buy some of these issues to fill his collection along with the follow along. Uh, yes, I agree. You could do worse than buying some of these books. I definitely recommend picking them up. Uh, other comments and mentions on Facebook, DC in the 80s. Uh, they mentioned us on their Facebook page. Uh, they were posting back on February the 8th. They pictured or showed the last issue of Manhunter, where it shows Manhunter with his costume in the garbage as he's walking away. And transposed next to that is Spider Man with his costume in the trash as he walks away. And he made a mention of us to, to bring our attention to that. Again, DC in the 80s is a great Facebook group. If you get a chance, check them out. Uh, but I believe that should wrap up our Facebook comments and likes. Uh, brief over on Twitter. We don't have a Twitter handle set up directly for this podcast, but on our Head Speaks, try that again. On our Headcast Network page, Comics Couplets liked our tweet uh, when we announced our Zero episode. And also, Court Industries. No one named here. Again, couple comics couplets and Kyle Benning are all following us over on Twitter. And again, our Twitter handle over there is at Headcast Network. Again, as I said, you can follow us on Headcast Network or on Twitter uh, and on all the social medias. It's Headcast Network. And on iTunes, that's where all of our feed's going to be. But we'll get that in just a minute. Now on to our mailbag. We've got a couple emails. Our first one is from our buddy Clinton Robinson. Uh, he says, Great Zero episode, sir. Will Payne is my favorite Starman and was part of my introduction to the larger DC universe outside of the traditional JLA. So glad to know somebody is covering this rise and, sadly, eventual fall. I never read any of the Mark Shaw Manhunter series, but I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. The intro to your show is highly enjoyable, and I look forward to the next episode. Keep up the good work. And I replied back to him, told me, oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the Zero episode. And I also loved Will Payton. and was sad to see him go. And then he wrote back and said, uh, Star Hunter is a magnificent term for fans listeners of this podcast. Now I've only had a cool name for the mailbag segment. Oh, well, more creative people than I shall deliver on that one. Take care of yourself, and de- definitely stop doubting yourself. You're doing great. Because I expressed some doubts, yeah, you know, I wasn't quite sure how well it was going to be. Uh, I'm always, as I told him, I always doubt myself, so it's good to hear from a listener to let me know how I'm actually doing. And as I told him, I'm telling you guys, please send in the feedback. I enjoy hearing from you guys. Uh, speaking of hearing from you guys, uh, a frequent writer to my G.I. Joe World American Headcast podcast, uh, Mr. Jeff Nettleton, he sent us a little email uh, talking about more creative people. Uh, Jeff starts in. He says, Hello, Aaron. Glad to hear a new podcast devoted to two favorite books of the late 80s. 
Starman and Manhunter. I got both these books when they first came out and stuck with them through thick and thin. Neither were big commercial hits, but they were always enjoyable, solid reads. I'm sorry, he says, but they were always solid reads. I do enjoy them, I guess. Ironically, I would also get to meet the primary artist of each of these books. I met Tom Lyle while he was working on the book, pretty, on, pretty early on, in fact, in Augusta, Georgia. He was just starting to make a name for himself after a couple of years working for companies like the Eclipse, On Strike, a Captain America Pachiche, written by Chuck Dixon. Lyle was a great artist who got some commercial love on Spider-Man during the infamous Clone Saga. Unfortunately, he appeared to leave comics, though I think he was involved with the Savannah College of Art and Design. I then got to meet Doug Rice, the artist on the first roughly half of the Mark Shaw Manhunter series with John Ossinger. I have since met Ossinger, but have never met Stern. I thought both comics had great premises and started with a bang, but had trouble maintaining the momentum. That wasn't to say they went downhill, just seemed to settle into a more steady run of good, but not epic stories. My butt in here real quick, Jeff. I agree with you. Uh, overall, I enjoyed both of these runs. Well, that's why I'm doing a podcast on them. But, uh, yeah, they didn't really have any epic stories for the most part, but they were, they were a good, solid run. I agree with you 100% on that. Back to Jeff's letter. Uh, come the 90s, good but not epic was quite a compliment, as many comics became epic, but not good. <laughs> that's true. A slight correction there. The Steve Ditko Starman was Prince Gavin with a V, not Garin with an R. Also, the later Starman series starred Jack Knight, not David, though he is the first Starman you meet in the book. I don't recall saying it was David, but uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I should realize it was Jack Knight was the, the next Starman series, which, again, I'm only going to cover a few issues of, but we'll get to that in a couple years. But yes, the, the next Starman... Technically, the next Starman is David Knight, but as we'll see, again, a few years down the road, or I don't know how I'm going to cover that yet, but anyways, he's not there very long, but the next actual Starman, the series was starring Jack Knight. Uh, thank you for correcting me there, Jeff. Uh, back to his letter. Starman was an excellent traditional superhero book with a higher-powered character. Stern handled the plots well, and Lyle had a nice, sleek, dynamic art style. He handled a flying character well, though the costume never did much for me, nor the black redesign. It looked much like a, too much like an Olympian ski jumper suit put together by a colorblind designer. The asymmetry didn't help. Stern and Lyle made good use of lesser DC gimmick character villains, like Bolt, which allowed for ready-made enemies, but ones without too much history. However, that was part of the problem with the series. Will Payton never seemed to find that classic arch enemy. Again, I'm going to interrupt. First of all, as I said Earlier, I enjoyed Starman's costume, though I do agree that it does look a bit like a uh, Olympic ski jumper suit by a colorblind designer. Maybe it helps I'm slightly colorblind myself. But uh, but I do agree that yeah, Will never did have a classic arch enemy, and that may have what helped hurt his cost is a uh, his book. Uh, moving on with Jeff's letter, Mark Shaw. I first met in the Kirby Manhunter first issue special issue which I found in a comic shop in college. That was soon followed by the Englehart JLA issues. I was really excited to see him turn up in Millennium a couple years after I found those comics and in the Suicide Squad. When the series debuted, I was in heaven. It was action-packed with an interesting character and a unique design, which both stood alone yet invoked some of the history of Manhunter. I asked Doug Rice about the design, and he said he was inspired by some of the Japanese action hero shows 
like Carmen Ryder and the Super Sentai Teens. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Which is the basis for the Power Rangers. The characters would appear in heroic costumes, but they would better constructed than most American TV shows and movies. Kamen Rider was a big influence, both on the stylings of the mask, as well as the neck scarf and the boots and the jumpers. And interrupting here again real quick, because that's what I do. Uh, that's interesting to know. Yeah, I wasn't aware of all that, so thank you very much, Jeff, for giving us that information from Doug Rice. Uh, it was interesting to hear about that. Um, back to Mr. Nelton's letter. Rice said that Ostrander pitched the series as an action-oriented one, where Shaw could act as a supervillain bounty hunter. Those first four issues really carry that forward well, with Shaw using his prison experience to gain the upper hand on the Penguin and Captain Cold, as we saw this issue. However, after that first storyline, sitting around Dumas, Oster got kind of sidetracked, building up the supporting cast of Mark Shaw's family. Rice lost interest, eventually left. Oster seemed to lose focus until late in the second year when he brought Dumas back. I suspect he was a bit overworked since he was also doing Suicide Squad, and at least one or two other books. I'd interrupt real quick. I believe he was doing Firestorm also at this time, and he may have started doing the Spectre, though that may have came a bit later. Uh, back to his letter. Those first four issues, though, would make a great movie. Uh, again, interrupting. I agree with you 100% there, Jeff. That would be a good movie. I, I would pay to see that. But back to your letter. If you or your listeners want to check out some Man Under History, try Ryan Daly's Secret Origin podcast where I joined him to talk about the Millennium tie-in issues setting on the origin of the various Manhunters. We cover the androids, Dan Richards, Paul Kirk, Mark Shaw, and the Millennium crossover, as well as a nod to the Kate Spencer series. Again, interrupting. And that's the, uh, the podcast I've been mentioning on and off throughout here, uh, Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast. And I forgot, yeah, it was Jeff Nettleton was his co-host on that. So uh, go check that out. I, I've told you. Don't listen. Go, go, go check it out right now. All right, come back. back. All right. Uh, anyways, to finish up Jeff's letter, looking forward to future episodes. If you want a feedback title suggestion, how about Cosmic Tracks? That gives you both a feeling of stars and hunting. Or not. Take care. Jeff Nelson. Well, thank you, Jeff. I like that Cosmic Tracks. I may end up using that unless someone comes up with their suggestion. Uh, but yeah, Cosmic Tracks isn't a bad title. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Uh, you are a talented man. Uh, but anyways, that's it for emails and all that good stuff uh, for this episode. Uh, so I guess there's not much more to say. Again, you can join us here monthly. Uh, this should be coming out the fourth Tuesday of the month. Is my plan. Some days like this first episode's delayed a couple of days. Uh, but you can check us out on iTunes. And again, you can check us out on the Headcast Network. Uh, where we have all of our terrific podcasts. Also, you can go to Facebook at facebook.com slash Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour and check out our page there. And again, you can visit us on the web at starman-manhunter.headspeaks.com. That is our official home on the inner tubes. Uh, and I guess that's going to do it for uh, my comments on this issue and everything. Uh, just a couple housekeeping things. Uh, be sure to write in. Let us know what you think. You can write into smah at headspeaks.com. Again, that stands for Star, or I'm sorry, it stars for Star Man Adventure Hour. S M A H. 
at headspeaks.com. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, and tell me how I'm doing, what am I doing right, what am I doing wrong. Let me know. This doesn't work without some feedback from you guys, all right? Uh, and also, let me know how you like, do you like the, the synopsis I'm giving? Would you like a more detailed plot synopsis? Uh, again, I'm willing to modify this show as needed to make it a better show. So let me know what you think. And if you have uh, an idea for a letter page title, other than Cosmic Tracks, which I'm liking so far, uh, you can let us know. But I guess that's about it for me this episode. Uh, I'm sorry, that's my son Grayson Warby, so I'm going to have to go take care of him. Right there, son. So, until next time, Star Hunters, this is Aaron. Keep looking for the stars. Oh, his tagline's not too bad. Anyway, oh, and finally, my last thought as I'm <laughs> signing out of here. Uh, I'm running about 120 minutes. There was about five minutes worth of commercials. So it's running a little longer than an hour long. Longer than I thought it would. So let me know if you like the format, uh, if you like the length of it, uh, what you guys like, don't like. Again, send me some thoughts. I'm all ears. All right, guys. My son's calling, so I'm out of here. All right, guys. So let's go. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to another great episode of the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. Please join us next month for another great, fantastic episode as we cover another issue of the Will Payton Starman series and the Mark Shaw Manhunter series. Uh, keep in mind that these podcasts are not affiliated or endorsed by DC Comics. I'm just a fanboy who loves these comics and wants to spread these love with everyone else out there and just talk about them. Um, again, you can email us at smah at headspeaks.com or you can go to our blog, which is at starman-manhunter.headspeaks.com You can also go to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash starman-manhunter-adventure-hour No spaces, all one word. But, once again, thank you very much for joining us. Until next episode... This is Aaron Moss saying, see you in the funny pages.